And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. I'd like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show today. And hope everyone enjoyed our last episode where we took a look at the classic Toho monster film Varan, as well as issue number two of Marvel Godzilla. We've got a great show lined up for you today. We're going to be taking a look at uh, another classic Showa film, this time over in the Gamera series with Gamera vs. Guren, as well as issue number three of Marvel Godzilla. But before we get into those, we've got a few bits of news to take care of. So up first is the biggest piece of news, I think, is that after some previous reports of the film being either put on hiatus or shelved altogether, Pacific Rim 2 is reportedly back on track. Now, Guillermo del Toro, who uh, first directed the first film, he's going to be moving over to the producer role, and former Netflix Daredevil showrunner Stephen Estes Knight is going to direct. Now, there's no other information that's been released at this time, and uh, I'm not really familiar with Knight's work. I've never... Uh, I'm not real familiar with either of the projects he's directed. I still haven't seen Daredevil. But uh, obviously that show has gotten a lot of critical acclaim. And as the showrunner for the first season of it, uh, Denight would obviously uh, get some on the credit for that. And uh, I'm very excited by this. I said from the start that Pacific Rim, if there ever was a property that needed uh, follow-up and uh, all you know expanded universe material, Pacific Rim was it. So very, very excited to see that Pacific Rim 2 will be moving forward. And uh, more information as this as it develops, because I'm very, very excited about this. And credit to CinemaBlend.com for this piece of news. Now, over in the toy side of things, uh, for those who preferred their vinyls a little bit bigger than what Bandai has been offering the last couple of years with the uh, Ultraman 500 slash Ultraman X slash Spark Doll line, which are the shorter uh, 500 yen uh, series, uh, they've now reintroduced what they're calling the Ultra Big Soft Vinyl. These are, as I said, an alternative to the Spark Doll size toys. These are 9 inches tall, and they retail for about 2100 yen, which is around $19 American. The first wave is Ultraman, Ultraman Tiga, Ultraman Zero, and Ultraman X. Now, these are to scale with the, uh, the older uh, vinyl figures. They're... Just a little bit bigger, I think. I, I don't have one in hand to compare them, but at 9 inches, they, they should be uh, a much uh, bigger presence on your shelf than the smaller Spark Dolls. Uh, but, of course, you're going to be paying uh, a bit more money for them. Uh, usual retailers, you can find these at HLJ, Ami Ami, and so forth. Uh, hat tip to Sci-Fi Japan for the tip about these guys. Now, in similar import toy news... Uh, Bandai Tamashii Nations, their SH Figure Arts Ultraman. Now, this is the original Ultraman from 1966, uh, not the previously released uh, manga version of Ultraman. Uh, this is coming in July at a price of 5,200 yen, about $50. Uh, next in that line is also going to be Alien Balton. He's going to follow in August for about 5,900 yen, which is about $58. Uh, I will not be buying these. I went in on Ultra Act. 
as far as the ultra, the the uh, high-end Ultraman toys, and I've got six of those. I have Ultraman, Ultra Seven, Ultraman Jack, Ultraman Taro, Ultraman Ace, and Ultraman Leo. So I'm not going to be getting the SH figure arts, which are a little bit smaller than the uh, than the Ultra Act. Um, and I've, I'm, besides having all the Ultra Acts, I've pretty much sworn off expensive import toys. They were really starting. It was too many good releases, and it was starting to get a bit out of hand. Uh, that having been said, these look like really nice pieces. Typical SH Figure Arts articulation and extra swappable pieces. Uh, the one picture I saw that I thought was really neat is it even included uh, the ultra screen defense that Ultraman could put up, and include and including Alien Bolton at such an early in, uh, so early in the line, I think is really promising. One of the problems with Ultra Act is that they didn't do a lot of monsters, and the monsters they did do tended to be very expensive because there's a lot of extra jointing and stuff because of the size. Um, I typically, what I did was just buy an Ultra Act of the uh, the heroes and then just got vinyls of the monsters because they scaled perfectly together. That was why Ultra Act existed, was in order to scale with the, uh, the, the, the traditional Ultra Monster line of vinyls. So, um, But uh, credit to Toku Nation for... Um, for this piece of news, and you can, st- I think pre-orders are up. If you go to like HLJ, you can probably see your pre-orders for these if you are interested in them. And speaking of Ultraman, Ultraman Ginga and Ginga S have recently been added to Crunchyroll, which lets you watch them free of charge with ads, or you can of course be a subscriber and watch without ads. But there's the complete series of both shows, and they are subtitled. These are the official releases from Subaraya. Crunchyroll has a good amount of both Showa and Heisei. Uh, era Ultraman stuff, including their just recently wrapped up simulcast of the current Ultraman series, Ultraman X. So check it out. Uh, I use the Crunchyroll app. You can also check them out at Crunchyroll.com. And in the comic news, over at IDW, Godzilla Devastation is a five-issue miniseries that has just begun as I'm recording this. Uh, The plot for this miniseries involves a trans-dimensional experiment bringing monsters into a world where previously there had been none. All I have to say is, guys, enough with the artificial black holes already, okay? It doesn't work. Uh, this, like I said, it ju- the first issue has just come out. I don't have it yet. I'm waiting on my mail-order comics box, but it looks pretty cool. I was surprised to see this solicited because I thought after Rulers of Earth number 25, IDW was going to be done with Godzilla, but looks like they're going to be keeping that going for at least one more miniseries. Now, in other comics news, uh, over at Legendary Comics, Pacific Rim, Tales from the Drift, has unfortunately not had an issue solicited past issue number four. So uh, I think this may be considered a retroactive miniseries, or maybe it's going to go on hiatus and come back later. I don't have any other information, and there wasn't anything in the uh, the February solicits. The March ones have not uh, been posted yet as of uh, this recording, but as soon as I know some more about that, I'll let you know. I've enjoyed Tales from the Drift, and as I said earlier, you know, any expanded universe material for Pacific Rim is welcome. Uh, but, uh, you know, if it only is a miniseries, hey, that's fine. It'll stand on its own then, right? So, uh, still pretty good. Um, and if you guys have any news or uh, rumors you want to pass along about anything giant monster related, go ahead and send it in. You can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com, and I'll be sure to report it and give you credit here on the show. So, with the news out of the way, we're going to be taking a quick break. And when we come back, we'll get right into the thick of things with Gamera versus Guren. 30 years ago, I walked into a comic store and I picked up G.I. Joe and the Transformers number one. A month later, I came back 
They say every journey has a first step. Every story has a beginning. This is mine. I may have begun my comics collecting career in earnest in 1990, but from the fall of 1986 until the fall of 1987, I was a regular at my LCS. So in honor of 30 years of collecting comics, I'll be recapping and reviewing all of them on the days they originally came out. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Origin Story, a podcast miniseries starting this September at popcultureaffidavit.com and twotruefreaks.com. And we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Gamera vs. Guren was released March 21st, 1969 in Japan, and was released to US TV later on in 1969 as Attack of the Monsters by American International Pictures Television Division. The film was also released on video in the United States in the 1980s as Gamera vs. Guren, this is the Sandy Frank dub, and was famously featured on Mystery Science Theater 3000 twice, first in the KTMA Episode 8, and then uh, much more widespread on Season 3, Episode 12 of the series' proper run. This was the fourth of five Gamera movies screened uh, by Joel and the Bots on Mystery Science Theater 3000. And our film was directed by Noriaki Yuasa. While scanning the skies through their telescope, two young boys, Akio and Tom, spy a spaceship descending into a nearby field. Stunned and bemused, they tell Akio's mother what they have seen, but she dismisses their story as childish nonsense. The next day, the two boys, along with Akio's younger sister Tomoko, uh, bicycle to the site to investigate. Enthralled, Akio and Tom manage to steal into the spaceship, but then, without warning, the ship takes off, leaving Tomoko behind. It soars into outer space toward a field of asteroids, which send the boys into a panic. However, Gamera, a friend to children everywhere, obviously aware of the boy's plight, appears and clears a path for the ship through the asteroids. The spaceship, flying near the speed of light, leaves Gamera behind and transports the boys to an unknown planet, where it lands on the outskirts of an abandoned alien city. Suddenly, a silver space gauss appears, menacing the ship and the two boys. Just before the creature attacks, a second, more bizarre monster named Guren whose head resembles a kitchen knife, emerges from an underground lair and attacks the Space Gauss. The Space Gauss emits a sonic beam that reflects off of Guren's blade-shaped head and cuts off its own leg in the process. And after a short battle, Guren lunges and chops off one, then the other, of Space Gauss's wings. The creature then cuts the helpless Space Gauss's head off and brutally cuts the body into smaller pieces before retreating back to its lair. Akio and Tom explore a portion of the alien city and meet the planet's only inhabitants, two beautiful young women named Barbella and Flobella, who explain that their planet, known as Terra, orbits the sun directly opposite the Earth, which is why it has never been discovered by Earth's astronomers. Because, you know, gravitational waves wouldn't tip anybody off in that case. But 
that's neither here nor there. Furthermore, Terra is facing extinction. Not only is the planet growing old, and thus very cold, the Space Scouts continually lay siege. The knife-headed monster Giran is their last defense against the Space Scouts. Barbella and Flobella reveal their true nature and turn on Tom and Akio, putting them into restraints. Using their super-technological devices, the alien women probe the boys' minds, in the process learning about Gamera and its soft spot for human children. It is revealed that the Terran women plan to feed on the boys' brains and flee the doomed planet. In preparation to extract Akio's brain for their nourishment, the women shave the child's head. On a rescue mission, Gamera lands on Terra in search of the boys. The women deploy Guren to attack the giant turtle. Guren charges at Gamera, but the friend to all children grabs one of Guren's front legs and chomps into it. Guren tries to shake off the towering tortoise. Wrapping his tail onto a monolith, Gamera throws Guren into a canyon, causing his head to get stuck in the ground. Gamera then uses his fiery breath on Guren. Guren is far from defenseless, though and he fires his shurikens from the side of his head, penetrating Gamera's cheeks right underneath his eyes. Wounded, Gamera puts ice on his cuts, but Giran fires his shurikens again. This time, Gamera blocks the shurikens with a chunk of ice, ricocheting them into Giran's shoulders. Giran trudges away, while wounded Gamera tumbles into a lake, unconscious. Tom manages to free Akio, but in the process, unintentionally releases Giran. No longer under the aliens' control, Giran rampages through the Terran city, even attacking its own mistresses as they attempt to flee the Earth. The knife-headed creature slices their spacecraft in half, mortally injuring Barbella. Flobella then kills Barbella as she relates that useless members of their society are euthanized. While Giran attacks the base where the boys are imprisoned, Gamera awakes and renews his assault on the alien creature, ultimately ramming Giran's head into the ground. Flabella retreats to the control room while the boys fire a rocket at Guren. The rocket is then cut in half by his blade, with Gamera grabbing one half and the other half hitting the control room, killing Flabella. Gamera takes the other half of the rocket and spears Guren in his head through the shuriken launching spot. Gamera then uses his flamethrower breath on Guren, and the rocket explodes, severing Guren in half. Gamera uses his flame energy to wield the alien spacecraft back together and carries the ship and the two boys back to Earth. On Earth, the boys have returned to their mothers, and they all say their goodbye to Gamera as he flies off into space. Hmm, this is a, this is a, oh boy, this is a strange one. Uh, <laughs> I think there's a reason why this film holds a dear place in a lot of Daikaiju fans' heart. Uh, probably from its appearance on Mystery Science Theater 3000 more than anything else, but this is an unusual one, even without Joel and the bots riffing on it. So let's get uh, right into our notes here. Uh, first off, one thing I notice, a spaceship lands on outer space. No one notices it except these two kids. Uh, well, you know, I guess that's what happens when you cut funding for uh, your space program, but seriously, that seems even a, a little suspect even for this film. Now, early on in the film, uh, the, the kids are all talking, and, you know, Akio and Tomoko's mom dismisses uh, all the their sighting of the spaceship and all that. And Tomoko has the line of, grown-ups have no dreams. And I think this was very telling of the fact that between this film and the previous film, Gamma vs. Virus, previously covered here on Earth Destruction Directive, 
is that they were very much embracing the kiddie movie, the kid vid sort of scene for these films. And uh, that that line is very telling because, you know, that's the way kids look at things. Grown-ups have no dreams. They're just, especially in uh, in this film, they're just concerned about the day-to-day things. They're not concerned about reality, not anything fantastical. And they certainly don't believe that there's a spaceship that's going to land that's going to take these two kids to some crazy far-off planet where they're going to have adventures with a giant fire-breathing turtle. So I thought that was a, a nice touch. And, a, you know, in a movie whose dialogue constantly confuses planets and stars uh, and other, you know, nonsense like that, that it's a simple line that does a lot to, uh, you know, kind of address the motivations of the film's existence. One of the characters we meet on Earth is Konchan, or as they called him on Misty, Cornjob. And this is the uh, eccentric local police officer who uh, scolds the kids for riding double style on their bikes. Uh, but he is uh, he's a funny character because he's he's meant to be comedy that's with a capital K and three exclamation points and like all comedy he's you know painfully unfunny at that respect but i kind of like konchan because you know he's uh even though the kids kind of, you know, taunt him and play tricks on him and stuff, he actually believes that they actually went off. He's uh, he's a grown-up that still retains kind of that sense of dreaming and stuff. So I thought that was pretty funny. Um, you know, I, th- I think this is kind of lost in translation a little bit because the concept of the uh, the way a local police officer like this is uh, is very dated now. But in Japan, I think this might play a little better. If you know anything about the nature of the, um, you know, the police in Japan and uh, their relation to the communities and such, this character makes a lot of sense. It's He's funny. I, I always love Cornjob from uh, watching this on Misty. So I've got a bit of a, uh, a soft spot for Konchan. The spaceship that the kids find is a, is a fun, very showy design. In a lot of ways, it's kind of a standard flying saucer, but it's got a lot of extra bells and whistles on it. The top spins around uh, when it's in motion, which is very nice. Uh, you know, the neat little touch that easily could have been left out, but uh, that they decided to put that in. It's very much of the time. It looks like a 60s spaceship. It's nowhere near as creative as the uh, the big uh, the, the, the circle of spheres that the Virens used in Gamerus's Virus, which is probably my favorite ship in the uh, admittedly small amount of mecha that's used in the Gamera series. But this one's very neat too. I mean, this one looks like it belongs in a you know a mid '60s uh, children's science fiction movie. So I definitely appreciate that, and I like anything with a ship that parts of it spins around for no reason. As the boys duck inside the ship and start uh, seeing if anyone is there, they're calling out in Japanese, and Tomoko has what you know may actually be the line of the film. She says, think they'll understand Japanese? You're the dumb ones. <laughs> that really cracked me up while re-watching this for the, for the show here because it's a really good point. It's like we just kind of accept these things because, well, we're in a movie, and so they have to be able to communicate somehow. There's, you know, whether you do it like Star Trek with a universal... Uh, translator or do it like some other films like oh we're actually speaking telepathically and all that but you know uh tomoko kind of cuts right to the heart of the situation by asking that the hard questions there and it, it kind of hangs a lampshade on it because when we get to terra flabella and barbella do in fact simply speak japanese because you know how else would they communicate their their uh you know their plans to the boys so i i really cracked me up that was very funny now once the boys take off into space uh, they're, you know, auto, on autopilot. They're going to go crashing into the asteroids. And Gamera makes the save. And we get the Gamera theme song here, uh, which is always welcome if you're a Gamera fan. If you're not a Gamera fan, it might also be welcome because it's just 
a relic of a bygone age, let's say. But Gamera making the save, clearly the friend to all children. Uh, the monster from both uh, Giant Monster Gamera and Gamera vs. Barrigan, long gone. Not even a memory at this point for uh, for most viewers who simply see our antediluvian uh, tortoise as the friend to all children. And he, he does a, he comes off really well. He really goes out of his way to help these two kids. Um, doesn't, you know, I, you never really, or at least I never really thought about that when I was younger, how clearly juvenile these films are, but, you know, that they're just, you know, kid, kiddie fantasy type stuff. But they play really well on that level, so I can't argue with it. Uh, they were doing something different than what Toho was doing. You know, at this point, we were getting films like, um, you know, Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster and Monster Zero, so we were getting some space opera-y stuff, and this does have a little bit of space opera in it. But then they would be transitioning to films like Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster, Son of Godzilla, um, God's, you know, Destroy All Monsters, Godzilla's Revenge. So they were still, you know, doing the, you know, except for Godzilla's Revenge, and uh, even Son of Godzilla, to an extent, is a serious film. It just has some lighthearted moments in it. It's still not a kiddie film. Whereas this was clearly in the, the kiddie film realm. And uh, that was the market that they were going after. And they, you know, they pretty much succeeded can, to a certain degree. So I got to applaud them for at least making themselves unique and standing out in that sense. Now when they arrive at the planet Terra, I've got to say that for a, for a low budget film, I mean... The Gamera films were not nearly as high-budgeted as their counterparts over at Toho, and as the series went on, the budgets got less and less. But the set for Terra, both the model work as well as the scale city that the uh, monsters interact in, looks really nice. It's very alien. It's not, you know, like um, like we think of, uh, you know, like, the typical sci-fi city with towering spires and, you know, glass and bridges and stuff like that. It looks like a, a nice, a nicely organically alien planet, and I really like it. And even on my Blu-ray, the set, I thought, looked really well-constructed. It was very nice miniature. It's not the largest, and it's not the most intricate because there's not a lot of buildings and such, but that fits the story because this is a civilization on the decline, so they wouldn't necessarily have the massively uh, oversized city like you might get, uh, say, if you were shooting a film uh, or a scene that was supposed to take place in Tokyo, for instance. So I really enjoyed it. And there's uh, later on we see the underwater set after Gamera goes underwater to heal his wounds. And that looks really nice, too, because, again, it's still a standard underwater set. It's got caverns and, uh, you know, ridges and outcroppings and stuff. Uh, but it still manages to look alien, and I thought they did a really nice job of conveying that this clearly was another planet. For a monster that fights a lot of alien invaders, this was clearly a film not set on Earth, which was a first for the Gamera series, so that was really a nice touch. And since we're this far into the movie, we need to have some other monsters, so out comes Space Gauss. And Space Gauss, as you can guess from the name, is simply Gauss, spray-painted silver. There was supposed to be another original monster here, but... Unfortunately, the budget did not allow for that, thus thus the birth of Space Gauss. And, uh, you know, I, I like adding space before anything just to make it a random adjective. I always, like, had a soft spot for Space Titanium in the Mechagodzilla films. So I always kind of have a soft spot for Space Gauss. He, I mean, he looks like Gauss wearing an astronaut suit, essentially, with the silver. And then out comes Giren, and everybody loves Giren because Giren is insane, but also awesome. I mean, he's a monster who has a butcher knife for a head. 
I mean, you can't, I mean, you literally can't make this stuff up. It's so brilliant. It's so crazy. And it's such the type of monster that a little kid would make up. It's like, oh, and he's got a knife for a head and he can chop things up with it and he can get stuck in the ground with it. I mean, this, this is brilliant. And Guren is, uh, he's got the, you know, he's got, he's the watchdog, so to speak. So he's got kind of a canine sort of look with the uh, kind of, uh, you know, the, the dopey eye and the, uh, you know, the, that's the jaw that works up and down all the time. He, I mean, I, I really do attribute his popularity primarily to the screening of this film on Mystery Science Theater 3000, but, you know, this is a series of films that has some unusual monster designs in it. Once you get past Barugan, you know, you get Gauss and Virus and uh, Guren and Zegra, and uh, Jiger even, and th- these are some really creative monsters. And you know, they again, they were thinking outside the box. It's not just another dinosaur. It's not just a a robot version of it. It's not a, a monster based on mythology. This is clearly an original monster, and I think he works. Now, Treadmasters did make a Guren toy. Uh, it actually is a fairly accurate rendition of Guren, um, with the exception that now. Instead of having the little shurikens, he's got a little portion of the blade on his head that can launch off, so he's got like another extra segment on the top. Uh, I don't have that one. I would love to get the other Trendmaster um, Gamera toys. The only one I have is Virus, which my brother got me as a gift for Christmas several years ago. But uh, Guren was the first one of these I actually was aware of. Uh, noted Transformers fan Dave Van Domlin. And if you search for Dave's Transformers page, uh, you can find, it's on iRe.org, I think. You can uh, find his writings about Transformers that he's been doing since the Beast era. But he is a Guren fan, and he actually wrote a review of the uh, Trendmaster's Guren toy back in the day when I was in college. So that was uh, that was always pretty neat. And that's how I got introduced to the Trendmaster's Gamera f- uh, figures, as I never saw them in stores. But uh, be that as it may, like I said, Guren is a very popular monster. Um, and, uh, he, he has a good showing here. He, he comes across really well in this bizarre film, having the monster this strange and ridiculous. And I mean, ridiculous with all the love in the world, because I really do like Guren. He's such a strange monster. Uh, he really, uh, puts up a good showing for himself. Now the fight that he has with space gals is pure and non, you know, unfiltered die monster violence as poor Space Gauss is just, just eats it over and over after, you know, the sonic beam cutting his own leg off and then uh, getting, you know, his wings ripped off by, uh, by Guren and then decapitated and dismembered, chopped up like the mise en place uh, before you cook the, uh, the rest of the meal by Guren and purple monster gore everywhere. Now this scene was uh, edited uh, in the AIP uh, release of the film to cut out um, actually getting his head chopped off. That seemed a bit much probably for kids television. Although the Sandy Frank version leaves this in unedited because Sandy Frank really didn't edit his films that much. He just kind of put the dub track over him and went to town. So uh, good, but it's it's a very memorable scene, and uh, you know the, the the monster effects here are. I mean, that's that's pretty creative. It's pretty well done the way he just chops him up. But clearly, it's with segments that are attached and they're pulled off with with wire. But it actually, even again on the Blu-ray, still looks very effective, and it's it's funny. First time you see it, you're like. What? <laughs> you can't believe it. It's just, that's not something you see. And I mean, this was even for 
Godzilla ripping chunks of Hedra uh, and throwing him around, and Godzilla's the smog monster. But, you know, uh, Guren just chopped, laid him up, chopped him down, kind of thing. So, very, very memorable segment for sure. Now, uh, Flobella and Barbella tell the kids that Terra is uh, opposite, uh, orbits the sun exactly opposite of Earth. This reminded me of the hidden planet Planet X from Monster Zero from 1965. Now, of course, Planet X existed in, I think it's in Jupiter's shadow or Saturn's shadow, which is why they never see it. And again, wouldn't the gravitational effects be enough for the scientists to be able to figure out that there was something back there? But, you know, we're willing to let it slide. It's a great sci-fi trope, especially of these space opera sort of films of the 60s, of the hidden planet in your own solar system. Um... I, I don't know that this was, you know, a direct thing because of Monster Zero, but it certainly made me think of Monster Zero, just because Planet X will always be, uh, you know, the kind of the standard bearer of that hidden planet sort of trope. But I thought it was funny. And uh, I do think it's funny that if it is like Planet X, Planet X has only men and Terra has only women. So if you hook those two up, you know, maybe they'll stop sending monsters to destroy our planet. You know, hey, worth a shot, right? There is some stock footage mixed in with this as uh, Flobella and Barbella look at Akio's memories and uh, learn about Gamera, the friend of all children. But I'm okay with a little bit of stock footage because compared to Gamera versus Virus, any amount of stock footage is better than that film. So it's okay. Just flesh it out for a minute or so. Get to see a little bit of our favorite turtle in action and some of the classics. And Gauss, regular Gauss, makes a cameo in there. So, uh, you know, don't mind a little bit of stock footage. Helps keep the cost down. Now, <laughs> when they want to probe Akio's mind, they pull out this fancy-looking gizmo and run it over his head, and magically all his hair is gone. And all I can say is our hair clipper technology is light years beyond yours, because it really is just a hair clipper with a couple extra pieces of plastic hot-glued onto it. It's wonderfully kooky and, and, and just campy it's so 60s it's so die uh it's really great and i did have to really laugh when i saw that because it's just i was like oh are you serious ah the hair clippers but uh it's you know it's 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 funny though and so i can't i can't really complain about it because it, it they you know they pulled it off they shaved the kid's head so uh, it, it just made me laugh because I, I love seeing you know the fancy technology that's clearly just a regular household item with uh, you know some bells and whistles glued onto it because that's that's the future you know keyboards on the wall it must be the future during their initial fight, Gamera, you know, gets Guren stuck in the ground, which we all knew was going to happen when you've got a big head like that that's really sharp. It's going to get stuck in something. Uh, but then Guren keeps the, um, you know, kind of the unique design going as he fires the shurikens out of the side of his head. Now, I don't know what, I mean, the only thing I can think of is that, you know, you think about his head instead of like being a knife, more like a sword. And then, you know, the shurikens as being, the you know, a thrown weapon that, a, you know, maybe a ninja might use. But there's nothing really ninjutsu about Guren. He's not stealthy by any way. <laughs> I mean, uh, he's just kind of a big lumbering, like I said, guard dog. So it's an interesting choice. And it's a, another another kind of memorable thing about him. It, it just kind of fits with his overall bizarre design motif. It's like, well, of course, of course the, you know, a knife-headed monster can also shoot shurikens out of the side of his head. That's cool. The scene of it is, is pretty funny, you know, uh, because Gamera gets him stuck, like I said, in his cheekbones right underneath his eyes, and so then he grabs the ice and puts him on his face, and he's like, you can almost see him going, ah, that feels good. 
you know. So I thought it was, you know, uh, the continued humanization of Gamera and the anthropomorphization of him to give him those more human traits, being that he's the friend to all children. Yeah, that was uh, that that really kind of cracks me up. And then he gets to go all Snake Eyes, or if you prefer, the beginning uh, opening sequence to Revenge of Shinobi as he blocks the uh, two shurikens and returns them with his uh, big uh, giant icicle, you know, to to hit Guren. And uh, so that, I thought that was funny. And again, their, their fight is uh, it's kind of short. It, it's not as uh, graphic, obviously, as the Guren Space Gauss fight, but it's well put together. The suits are about the level you would expect from Dai. And as, as I said earlier, I think the miniature sets are really nice. So it's an enjoyable, if a bit short, on their initial tussle. And uh, Gamera collapsing into the water and going down to settle on the bottom of the alien sea is a really nice kind of subtle effect sequence. You don't necessarily think about it because it's not a uh, something getting destroyed and it's not a fight. It's just him kind of sinking down. But I think overall, it's a nice-looking uh, bit of work there. And they, Dai got pretty good at doing those underwater, those fake underwater sequences. I think when you have a turtle as your hero, you're, you know you're going to have to deal with water. And uh, so they, they did a good job of this. We'll see more of this as the series progresses. Not so much in uh, Gamma vs. Jiger, although we do get some. I think we get some in Gamma vs. Jiger. But then Gamma vs. Zegra, obviously when you've got a uh, you know a turtle fighting a shark, you're going to have to deal with the water in uh, such a conflict. Now in the, the second fight between Gamma and Guren, we get a scene that will probably go down in infamy and uh, prompted Tom Server to simply say, well, this is rich. And then, of course, I'm referring to Gamera spinning around the gymnastics bar after he's you know, thrown off by Guren. And it's just like, oh, gosh. I mean, it's, it's, oh, it's, it's, it puts Godzilla doing the Highland Fling kind of to shame as far as the silliness factor goes. But, you know, anytime uh, some of these films gets too silly and I got to, Carto, you know, snarkily roll my eyes or whatever. I got to remember, they were made for children. I guarantee that scene probably got big laughs back in 69 when it was released and probably got some uh, cheers and applause on TV in 69 here in the States. So I can't fault it too much because, again, you got one has to consider the target audience. But take it on its own merit. It's just like, oh, gosh, really? You just have to laugh because if you sigh too hard, you're just, you know, what does that get you? Better just to roll with it and think, of course, the turtle knows gymnastics. You know, why wouldn't he? Now, the the sequence where the kids uh, figure out by pressing a bunch of buttons that they can launch a, uh, a missile at Guren and try to help Gamera. First off, I think it's really neat that they're trying to help Gamera because he's their friend and he's been helping them, so clearly they have to return the favor. But it's a very amusing sequence, and they fire it straight at him, but they fire it at such an angle that it's going right towards the blade of his head, and it cuts in half. Now, why it didn't simply blow up as soon as the warhead split, I don't know. But, you know, that one has to just simply accept these things, I guess, and not think too hard about them, because otherwise you get into discussions about how a missile fired at a monster with a knife for a head didn't blow up when said knife cut said missile in half. So... You know, just kind of go with that, I guess. But it's a great sequence because a missile gets cut and cut in half, and especially on the Blu-ray where you got it in widescreen, you can see both missile halves flying. So Gamera goes, one goes right to him and it goes right into his hand, and the other just goes, and it's a nice combination of the miniature and then an explosion effect as it blows up the command center and Flo Bella with it. I mean, um, it's it's a nice little sequence. It's very kind of involved with a lot of different moving elements. 
that they had to put together. And I think it's a great uh, little effect sequence. And coming as it does close to the end of the film, I think it's uh, a good uh, place for it because the effects get more and more frequent as we get towards the end of the film. And it's a, uh, it's a sequence that definitely stands out. It's very nice. And Flobella, I mean, she gets hers. I mean, she had just killed Barbella because after Guerin cuts her ship in half, Barbella is mortally wounded and she does real. I mean, she's, uh, I said this before, but you know, she, she's stone cold, man. She just shoots Barbella dead and says the useless members of society don't, you know, don't get to survive. It's like, Jeez, this is you know the only person you got to talk to. You know everyone else is gone. He just killed her. It's like dang, Flabella don't don't play, man. Flabella don't shiv. The fight rages on. Gamera, of course, like I said, he jams the other half of the missile through Giran's head and then blows it up, and then Giran explodes. It's like, well, I don't think he's coming back for the sequel. Sorry, folks. Uh, you know, they never shied away from making sure the monsters were good and dead in the Gamera series. This is no exception. Um, you know, it's like, again, it's, it's, it's a kitty thing. It's, it, you know, okay, the monster, and the monster's dead now. That's, that's, I you can almost see that being what was written on the script. Uh, so it, it is neat that he, you know, instead of Gamera just shooting a bunch of flames and burning them up, he actually does dispatch of his foe in a fairly creative way, much like he did with Varus flying him up into the upper atmosphere and freezing him. So that was really nice. And then, uh, Gamera picks up the ship and manages to be precise enough with his flame to weld it back together. And at this point, I mean, if you're, if you're finding illogical flaws at this point in this film, just, you know, turn it off because you're, you're missing the point. The point is here, this is, this is kid fantasy, kid vid, just turn it off, ha- turn your brain off, have fun, and just go to town. So of course he can weld it back together. He breathes fire. It's hot enough to melt the alien metal. I'm sure he could fuse it back together. So you just got to go with it. And at that point, you're just, you're just kind of got a silly grin on your face because you're having so much fun watching it anyhow. Then Gamera flies to Boy's home and we get our big goodbye. This was not an uncommon ending in the Showa series uh, for either Gamera or Godzilla. Everyone on the beach waving goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. Um, I always wondered if this was prevalent in Japanese cinema of this era in other genres. Uh, I haven't really seen it much in the samurai films that I've seen, nor in, um, you know, some of the period pieces and such, but I wonder if this was a specifically a, a kind of daikaiju trope, or if this had more to do with the Japanese cinema in general, you know, the big farewell scene with the hero going off wandering or returning to the East or wherever they came from. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's, it's not, um, not surprising to see it. And uh, this one is uh, is boosted by the fact that, again, it has the Gamera theme song in it, which is always welcome. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a fitting end uh, to the film. And, and it, uh, you know, probably left the kids with a big smile on their face to see Gamera fly off into the sunset as the hero. I, I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I've made this clear enough, but this is a silly, silly film, but it's a lot of fun. It's better than Gamera vs. Virus by a good measure just because it is so much more original than Gamera vs. Virus. Uh, I like Virus. I like, uh, you know, the, the actual new sequences we get for that film. But this one kind of takes that film, that film element and does it better. You know, instead of the kids wandering around on the Viren ship, they're wandering around on Terra. But that's kind of the same sort of story, but here it does it better. Um, you know, there, there's more of a reason for, uh, you know, it's kind of the same motivation for Gamera to come, to come help the Earth children. 
but the the you know the the fight here is a bit more is a bit more involved. You know, we get a third monster in the mix with Space Gals. You know, we get two different times of them throwing down, and we don't have this over reliance on stock footage for you know whatever purpose. You know, whether we're talking about the way it was in Gamma versus Virus, or the way that uh, Toho would do it a few years from now in Godzilla versus Gigan, where they're used just to simply pad out the film and make the you know the meager effects go longer. Uh, here it's it's just you know f- f- light and get away. So most of this film is original, and it actually I think benefits for it. It's a kooky story, uh, no doubt about that, and it's not one to be taken seriously, which is why I think they had so much fun with it on Misty. I know I keep coming back to that, but I think a lot of people their first exposure to this film was through Misty. I know it was for me. I don't remember ever seeing Attack of the Monsters the AIP version on TV, whereas I have clear memories of seeing the original Gamera and uh, Attack of the Mo- uh, War of the Monsters, which Gamera vs. Berrigan, and Super Monster Gamera, which we'll get to um, somewhere down the line. I remember specifically seeing those on TV, but not this one until I saw it on Misty. So uh, I, I don't have a problem with that. You know, Misty is good about exposing people to films that they wouldn't have seen otherwise, and a lot of times, you know, people will, in fact, track down the films from Misty just because it wasn't something they were aware of before, and now it's kind of got their goat. Now, if you want to track down a copy of Gamma vs. Guerin, there's a lot of different uh, options for you out there. Uh, Alpha Video has the uh, DVD of the uh, the AIP, Attack of the Monsters version. I actually own this one. It's a bare-bones disc. I go Alpha Video, and it's just the Attack of the Monsters. Uh, Shout Factory put out a two-pack along with Gamma vs. Virus, and this has uh, a bevy of different ways to watch the film. It's got the Japanese version with the subtitles. It then has the AIP Attack of the Monsters, and then it also has the Sandy Frank Gamera vs. Guren dub. I'm not sure why one would want the Sandy Frank Gamera vs. Guren dub, but if you do, it is available out there. Uh, Mill Creek also put out a uh, the Gamera Collection um, Blu-ray disc, which was... Uh, uh, did Volume 1 and Volume 2. This is on Volume 2. Now these are, uh, they have four films on each. They're kind of a budget release. They don't have any extras to speak of. They're only in Japanese with English subtitles. But they look beautiful. That's, uh, I was very impressed at how nice this film looked, especially in widescreen on that Mill Creek Gamera Collection Volume 2 Blu-ray set. Uh, and if there's also a, a compilation DVD that has all of the Showa Gamera films on it, you can find that one also from Mill Creek. And then finally, the it's out of print now, but Rhino put out a Mystery Science Theater 3000 versus Gamera box set with all five of the Gamera films in one box, which if you can find it, buy it. Because I couldn't afford it when it came out, and now I really can't afford it because it's, it is out of my price range because it's out of print thanks to um, the uh, Misty going back over, or I should say going over, to Shout Factory away from Rhino. So, yeah, I said a lot of fun, and I had a lot of fun watching it. It's it's not a movie to take seriously, but it's a movie just kind of to sit, sit back and enjoy and, and watch uh, with some friends and just, just have a blast. Now, uh, my brother Jay sent me in some pre-feedback on Gamma vs. Guren, and uh, if you want to send any feedback, pre or otherwise, uh, you can do that at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. And here's what Jay has got to say about Gamma vs. Guren, a.k.a. Attack of the Monsters. Originally, this film was not even supposed to happen, but AIP said they would buy any giant monster movie that Dai produced, and Gamma, uh, Gamma vs. Virus had become a big hit, so they decided to produce the movie. The Dai front office actually wanted two Gamma films per year, uh, but the director Yuasa said no to that. 
AIP suggested the film feature an American and Japanese young boy. Now, I'm not, that one seems odd because they had already done that in Gamera versus Virus. They had an American and a uh, Japanese boy as the, as the two leads done specifically for the purpose of exporting. So maybe that kind of came up in discussion between AIP and uh, Dai, and they just kind of stuck with the idea. It's, it comes, uh, you know, it, it, it works. It makes sense. If you're going to export the film to the West, get a Western-looking uh, kid to be one of your leads. You know, makes sense to me. Uh, Jake continues, the film itself is good for what it is. Fun for kids, but not up to the Toho pictures of the time, although Godzilla's Revenge does feature a kid as well, and many may feel that it is not as good. I am one of them. Godzilla's Revenge has a ton of stock footage in it, um, and stock footage from films we had had already, you know, just seen relatively recently. It does have some some new original footage in it, but that one also has the the human scenes, which just kind of grind it to a halt. Whereas here, the human scenes kind of move along pretty quickly, and they're not too offensive, which is the best you can hope for in a uh, human scenes in a kitty monster movie like this. Um, the scenes with the blood were chopped down for the AIP release, but were restored for the DVD and Blu-ray release. The movie is available on DVD in several different releases, but the best value is the Blu-ray set, Gamera Ultra Collection Volume 2, uh, which is the one I, I have that I was just referring to. This has Gamera vs. Giren, Gamera vs. Jiger, Gamera vs. Zegra, and Gamera Super Monster for $7.99 on Amazon with Prime shipping. And, uh, of course, be sure to use the link at 2 for any of your purchases on Amazon.com. And uh, one little bit of trivia, the heads of Akio and Tom were shaved at the beginning of filming, and they wear wigs or hats during the rest of the movie. The Japanese boy said he would shave his head for 5,000 yen, which was about $14 at the time. And in conclusion, no more wars or traffic accidents. So, Jay, thank you very much for your, your pre-feedback. As I said, if you got any thoughts, pre or otherwise, on anything we covered, just send them to Earth Destruction Directive at Yahoo.com. Uh, yeah, I, I got to agree with pretty much everything you said there. It's as a kid's movie, this is, this is kind of a blast. It's, it's just crazy enough that I think the, it'll appeal to a kid's mindset, especially if they want to see some monsters thrown down. It doesn't hold up to scrutiny, but if you take it with the right mentality and just, just go in and enjoy it. I ended up watching this really early in the morning. I got up early one Saturday and, um, you know, the rest of the house was still asleep. So I just went downstairs and threw it on, got myself a big cup of coffee and just watched it. Oh, I just had a absolute ball. I had a grin on my face the whole time. It's, it's, uh, it's just one of those movies. It's kind of infectious in its uh, earnestness. You know, it doesn't take itself seriously, but what's going on, they, it's, uh, you know, they're not laughing at it either, you know. So there's something to be said for that. And, and a lot of times I think earnestness gets mistaken for camp. Um, and it is a fine line. I don't think this is camp at all. I think we would, we can see camp in, in certain monster films. I don't think it happens in, in this one. And I, I enjoy this one. I don't, I don't put it up. Gamera vs. Barugan is still my favorite of the Showa Gamera films. I like that one because it's serious and different from the other ones. But of the kitty films, mm, this is a pretty strong contender. This is really good. And as I said, there's a reason why Guren's as popular as he is. And a part of it's because he's just banana crazy go nuts. I, he's just, <laughs> just, just an insane monster design that surprisingly works well. So... Um, so yeah, that's about it. Like I said, it, there's a lot of different ways to check this out. So I recommend checking it out. If you're listening to the, I know I say this all the time, but I only say it all the time because it's true. 
But if you're listening to Earth Destruction Directive, you will probably enjoy this film. So there's, you got a multitude of ways to check it out. I, I personally recommend that Blu-ray uh, four-pack, the Gamma Ray Ultimate Collection Volume 2 four-pack. Pick them both up. Can't beat it. You know, get the entire Gamera show a series on Blu-ray for 15 bucks. I mean, that's just that's perfect where I come from. But anyway, so uh, that's uh, Gamera vs. Guren. Go check it out. And uh, then after you've watched it, go watch the Misty version, and you'll laugh at all sorts of different things. So uh, that's about all I've got right now on this one. We're going to take a quick break and be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Let's go, camera. 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 Camera is really neat. Camera is filled with meat. We've been eating camera. Shell, teeth, eyes, flames, claws, breath, scales, fun. Dr. Forrester is kind of a jerk. And Frank is really dumb, too. We have to take part in these lame experiments. But do we complain? No! No! Yes! Huh? So we hike keep all over the place. And talk of a thousand wonderful days. Everybody now! Camera is really sweet. He is filled with turtle meat. Now we have commercial signs. Does gambling control your entire life? When you wake up in the morning, is your first thought about your first bet of the day? Do you hide your gambling from your family? Has gambling impacted your work, your home life, and your well-being? If you answered yes to these questions. Then come on down to Buckaroo Bob Silver Dollar Casino and Saloon! We've got blackjack, poker, roulette, craps, baccarat, shamanda fair, bingo, kino, sportsbook, OTB, and slots, slots, slots for your gaming pleasure. We're open 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year, so you don't have to sneak away from your job or family to get in on the action. Come check out our full-service, all-you-can-eat saloon so you never have to leave. And be sure to make some time for the Buckaroo Gals Hoop-Dee-Doo Review, the wildest cabaret show in the Old West. Yee-haw, it's a gamer's paradise here at Buckaroo Bob's. So if gambling is your life, then head on over to Buckaroo Bob Silver Dollar Casino and Saloon, conveniently located off of State Road 23 on the frontage road. Turn left at the discount bait and tackle adult cigarette gift emporium outlet and follow the sides to fun. Buckaroo Bob's, where the only gambling problem is when you run out of chips. Be there! Eons past, a monstrous hybrid of land and marine reptiles was sealed into a state of suspended animation, slumbering through the fall of dinosaurs and the rise of man. But, awakened by an undersea nuclear test, the creature returned to life, now breathing the fires of radiation. Stan Lee presents Godzilla, King of the Monsters.
right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Now we're going to take a look at Godzilla, King of the Monsters, number three from the Marvel Comics Group. Godzilla number three was cover dated October 1977, released on or about July 5th, 1977. This information, of course, comes from Mike's Amazing World of Comics at dcindexes.com. Our writer is Doug Mensch, our penciler, Herb Trimpey. Inker is Tony DiZaniga. The letterers are Denise Wall and Irving Watanabe. The colorist is Don Warfield. The editor is Archie Goodwin. And the title of our story is A Tale of Two Saviors. Fresh off his landing and subsequent departure from Seattle, Godzilla finds himself in San Francisco, menacing the Golden Gate Bridge, only to be accosted and engaged by the SFPD Harbor Patrol. 403 miles south in Los Angeles, newly minted super team The Champions are alerted, with Hercules, Black Widow, Iceman, and Angel taking off in the Champs craft and heading towards the Bay Area. At the same time, on the Shield helicarrier above Washington State, Dum Dum Duggan orders Agent Gabe Jones and the rest of the S.H.I.E.L.D. Green Team to San Fran at best possible speed, despite Agent Jones' clear distaste for the mission. In San Francisco, the champions arrive and spring into action, drawing Godzilla away from the bridge and towards the shore. Where reporters and onlookers scramble, the angel is knocked out of the sky by an errant swipe of the Big G's tail. Hercules runs in to save his fallen teammate from being stepped on, and using every ounce of his demigod strength, manages to flip Godzilla onto his back, flattening four square blocks of, thankfully, evacuated buildings. The move, however, enrages Godzilla, and he lashes out with his atomic breath, setting the area ablaze, leaving Hercules to wonder if that was such a smart move after all. Right around this time, S.H.I.E.L.D. arrives, and Duggan is none too pleased to see costume interlopers on the scene as they prepare to deploy their electro-nets to stop Godzilla. We then shift to an interlude as S.H.I.E.L.D. agent Wu drops Dr. Takaguchi, Tamara, and Rob Takaguchi in Detroit to be left in the care of one Mr. Tony Stark, who explains that all the facilities are available to them in their work. Rob, however, is only concerned with how he can avoid Stark's security. Back in the bay, Duggan orders the champions away from the scene in order to deploy the Electronets. The champions not only elect to stay, but a near miss in the air between a rocket sled riding Duggan and the Angel leads to Godzilla submerging, then surfacing right under the Golden Gate Bridge and smashing it in two as he does. Iceman freezes Godzilla's head in a block of ice as Hercules swims towards Godzilla to engage him. Seeing the figure in the water, Duggan tries to order his team not to drop the Electronets, but doesn't make it, succeeding only in causing his team to miss Godzilla completely. Hercules, being thrashed about in the water, grabs a hunk of the collapsed portion of the Golden Gate Bridge and hurls it at Godzilla, which Big G easily avoids, leading the stretch of concrete and rebar to smash into the port side of the helicarrier and destroy two of its engines, causing the mighty ship to crash into the bay. Godzilla looks on at the cartage and then turns and walks back out to sea, his motives known only to himself. Duggan rails at the champions for their foul-ups, but Agent Jones says they are all to blame, with Angel adding that their own immature competition made them lose sight of the real adversary. Duggan claims Jones has gone soft on the monster, and the champions head back to L.A., with Black Widow commenting that they still have a lot to learn about being a team. Next issue, Godzilla vs. Batragon.
Oh, oh. boy. <laughs> this issue is a doozy. Um, one of the most well-known issues of this series, just because of the fact that the champions are in it and some of the events that go down in it, but the result is a decidedly mixed bag, and that I think that might be putting it diplomatically. So let's get right into the notes. Our cover shows a really strange perspective as Godzilla's looking right at us, but in the immediate foreground we have Hercules, Iceman, the Angel, and the Black Widow. So it, it's kind of hard to to tell that it's supposed to be Godzilla's face at first. It just looks kind of weird. I like the layout and the figure work, um, but... You know, Black Widow is literally lying sexually on the ground doing nothing. I mean, she's, you know, she's got her hips turned toward us. She's got her breasts pointed out toward us. Her, you know, she's got her, you know, arms back and pushing her up. She's literally doing nothing except laying there in a prone position. I cannot imagine what the bloggers and Tumblr kids would do with this cover nowadays. Uh, luckily, that didn't wasn't an issue uh, back in the 70s when this originally came out. But, oh, my gosh. Uh, I don't know. It's it's not not a great cover, and not certainly not one of my favorites. Despite the really nice image of the uh, champions' characters themselves on the cover. Page one is our splash page. It's an excellent setup of the scenario as we see Godzilla looming above the Golden Gate Bridge with the Harbor Patrol boats uh, in the foreground zooming towards him. Uh, the scale of G is nice because he's holding onto the top of the Golden Gate Bridge. And so you get a real idea for how big he is relative to the bridge because he's directly interacting with it. The police boats look really nice. They're very dynamic. They really look like they're moving through the water. Uh, so it's, it's, it's good. Trippy does a real good job of framing the scene. You can see this whole scene kind of playing out like a movie in your mind of Godzilla coming and coming towards the bridge and the police boats speeding around with the policemen shouting orders back and forth. I, I really like it. It's a good splash page. Page 2, panel 4. Godzilla smashes a uh, police boat and sends it flying. My brother Jay said in his pre-feedback last time that G looks like a sumo under Trimpy. This image is a complete sumo pose, and he's got a nice gaping maw as well. It's, he's got his fists kind of pounding down. He almost looks like a sumo at the start of a match when they're getting down real low here. Uh, it, we don't see as much of that kind of uh, sumo proportion on Godzilla this time out, but this page definitely shows it. Also has a nice automatopoeia splash pash! As one is for each uh, fist splashing into the water. Uh, page three, we cut to Los Angeles and the champions. Hercules is drawn to look like Steve Reeves. This is not a complaint. Flipping over now to page seven, the champions spring into action. This team takes a lot of ribbing, most of it deserved, but I do have to say this is a good foursome here. You got two act, two of two former Avengers and two former X Men. So it's, it's a good little mix-up in an era when, you know, the X-Men were kind of, uh, you know, we're only a short while removed from, uh, you know, giant-size X-Men. So X-Men weren't the juggernaut, no pun intended, that they were when I was growing up. They were, they were coming into their own. But having two of the original X-Men here and, you know, two former Avengers from an era of Avengers I've read back in the 60s and early 70s, I think it's a, it's a good group. Now, I think you add Ghost Rider into the mix, things start getting a little weird, but... You know, that is what it is. Also nice on this page, uh, Iceman does the ice bridge in order to travel. And that's a flashback to Spider-Man and his amazing friends, which is the show that I cut my teeth on for the Marvel Universe. So I'm always a sucker for, Sp for Iceman doing the ice bridge like he used to do on that show. Turning over now to page 11, this is a really good sequence. 
Uh, everyone's kind of in action here as we've got the San Francisco PD opening fire and the Angel swooping down and then getting swatted out of the air almost, you know, pretty much by accident by Godzilla. And then you see Godzilla's foot coming right towards him. And, uh, you know, Hercules rushing in. It's, it's a really solid storytelling from Trimpy. Uh, I don't know that I buy that Hercules could stop Godzilla's foot without the ground beneath Hercules simply giving way. You know what I'm saying? It's like the old thing of, you know, why, you, you know if you get something unbreakable hitting something else unbreakable against a wall, wouldn't the wall break before one of the unbreakable things broke? So, uh, you know, you've got Godzilla stepping down Hercules, and you see the, the ground below Hercules start to crack and crumble. I mean, wouldn't he, you know, especially considering they're, in San, they're near San Francisco Bay, that can't be really solid bedrock that he's standing on. Why wouldn't Hercules simply go through the, the ground and be, you know, be underneath the ground with Godzilla's foot? I'm thinking kind of like uh, at the end of The Incredibles with Violet's force field, where it gets driven into the ground by the, the robot. Wouldn't that be the same thing? Of course, this leads us to page 14, where I call bullflop on the whole thing of Hercules pushing Godzilla and flipping him over onto his back. Now, it's my bias. I admit that. But I have a really hard time swallowing Hercules being able to push Godzilla off of him with enough force to actually topple the big G. But fine. You put Godzilla in the Marvel Universe, something like this was bound to happen. If, if not Hercules, it would have been somebody else. Now, if this was Hulk, who's another monster, I would not have minded so much. That's a monster versus monster thing. Say what you want about the Hulk. Bottom line, end of the day, for me, he's a monster. He's a monster hero, but still a monster. Hercules is not. So I have a hard time really swallowing this. Uh, you know, all that having been said, I really do dig Trimpy's use of perspective here. We've got uh, Godzilla's giant foot in the extreme foreground. And his tail sneaking between his legs. So uh, it, it's a real, it's a kind of a nice image, even if I don't buy it. Now, I do have to ask, where are all the Man of Steel haters complaining that the champions didn't move the fight to a less populated area? I'll, I'll wait right here for them to come and complain. Oh, well, they're, they're not coming? Oh, they're not complaining that the champions didn't move this fight to a less populated area? Oh, well, I guess I better get back on with the show. Moving over to page 15, panel one, uh, Godzilla just lets loose with the atomic breath after getting up to being flipped onto his back by Hercules. Pretty natural reaction. I have to really give Doug Mensch a bunch of props for having Hercules' feet of strength ultimately be of little to no value, pretty much creating a substantially bigger problem by making Godzilla really, really angry. And later on down the page on panel four, as Duggan is uh, uh, apoplectic overseeing the champions there, his cigar flies out of his mouth. Uh, that is number one that that happens in this book. We're just going to be keeping count after Jay mentioned it last time. Uh, turning over to page 16, this is the interlude here at Stark Industries. Always happy to see Tony Stark. Uh, Trimpy did do actually do a few issues of Iron Man around this time, mostly in 1976. But um, I always associated Trimpy more with Hulk than Shellhead when we're talking, you know, traditional uh, Marvel Universe books. But his Tony looks very, uh, very typically Bronze Age. It's, it's not, Trimpy's got a different style than who in my mind is, you know, air quotes up to the mic, the uh, Bronze Age uh, Iron Man artist, which of course is George Tuska. Tuska's faces were more emotive than Tr um, Trimpy's faces, but he definitely looks 
Like, he wouldn't be out of place in an Iron Man if this was an Iron Man instead of in Godzilla from this time period. He's got, you know, the, the right cut of suit, the right style of hair. He's got the mustache and all that, so he looks good. Not sure what's going on with this. I'm sure we'll find out more about this subplot in a later issue. But you know me. I'm a big Iron Man fan, so anytime, you know, uh, Tony Stark pops up, that's always plus for me. Turning over now to page 17, panel 4, while yelling at Hercules, Dum Dum Duggan's cigar flies out of his mouth again. That is number 2. Then over on page 22, uh, panel 1, as the angel and the and Dum Dum Duggan have a near miss where they're both kind of flying at Godzilla, uh, Duggan flies almost into the maw of Godzilla. We actually see the rocket sled flying into Godzilla's mouth and Dum Dum bailing out. And um, then we just you know see him kind of in free fall here before uh, he, he, you know, he, he gets uh, saved. So I just have to ask, is an ongoing storyline going to be Duggan dying of radiation poison? You know, given what we now know about Dum Dum Duggan in the modern Marvel Universe, spoilers for Howling Commandos of S.H.I.E.L.D., which no one is reading but me, he's been dead for a long time and he's just a series of life model decoys that keeps coming back. Maybe he did die of radiation poisoning from fighting Godzilla in San Francisco. It would be more believable than most of the stuff that goes down in Marvel Comics nowadays, but that's a rant for another time. Later on down the page, panel 5, this is Godzilla coming up from underneath the Golden Gate Bridge and really just ripping it in half. Fantastic panel by Trimpy here of the Golden Gate Bridge getting torn asunder. Trimpy has a great pose for Godzilla. He really looks like he's just rearing up, the water streaming down off of him. And Wol and Watanabe's simple sound effect, it's R-A-W-W, just it really evokes that sound of twisted, rending metal. I really like it. Sometimes less is more, and this is a case of that with the sound effects. I, so this was a great panel. I wish this... Um, it, it's, it's about a third of the width of the page and about half the height. I wish this was given more space because it's such a kind of pivotal moment in the story. But, of course, it gets outshined a couple pages from this, which is probably why it's this size. But it's really nice. I like this panel very much. On page 26, panel 3... Uh, Godzilla easily dodges the nets that are fired at him. Obviously, these guys did not watch Godzilla vs. The Thing, otherwise they'd have known to get right above him and drop the nets. That's how they did it in that, and that worked. You know, at least they got the nets on him. Here they don't even manage that. This, of course, leads, uh, sets up his agility. That for some, you know, almost like a Simon Furman book, how can something this big move that fast? Uh, which no one, unfortunately, actually says here, but it does a good job of setting up Godzilla is much more agile than he looks, because on the next page, Godzilla easily dodges the hunk of the bridge that Hercules throws at him. It's impressive to me that Hercules managed to throw this big hunk of the bridge without any leverage, considering he's literally floating in the water when he does it. So that's all arm strength. That's pretty cool. Uh, but come on, you had to see this coming after he avoided the nets, Hercules. You had to. I get that you're not that bright. I've read enough Avengers comics to know that Hercules, he's not the strategist, he's not a thinker, but come on. He just dodged these big nets. You're going to throw some big hunk of concrete and rebar at him, and he's not going to dodge that? I mean, come on, man, seriously. And later on down the page, panels three through five, the hunk of the bridge tears right through some of the helicarrier's engine, and down she goes. And uh, this is a, a neat uh, sequence. Although one oddball thing, panel four, uh, we see um, two of the agents on the on the deck. And uh, 
and we hear Dumding, uh, or hear one of the agents yell, I don't know, sir, but we can't, I can't hold the wheel, we're in a dive. Cut starboard engines two and three fast. So the helicarrier has an, a wheel like a ship? I mean, because we see it. We see it's a big wheel like you'd see on a sailing ship. I, I don't have a particular problem with that. I think it's actually kind of neat, but it's just funny. It's like you wouldn't expect that. You'd expect it to have, you know, controls that control something in the air, not in the water. You know, but you know, their helicarrier technology is far beyond mine, so. Over now to page 30, our second splash page of the uh, of this story, and splash is the right term as the helicarrier crashes right into the bay. And I have to admit, helicarrier down deserves its own splash page. Um, I, I cannot argue with that. So from a design and a layout standpoint, not having a bigger panel, a bigger panel, excuse me, for Godzilla destroying the Golden Gate Bridge makes sense because you've got to do this here. Um, and considering how much this is almost approached cliche in the mid 2000s, early 2010s, it's kind of refreshing to see it in a Bronze Age book, especially not as as a pretty much a plot device to show how badass a villain was, but instead as a monument to ineptitude. I mean, this happens just because S.H.I.E.L.D. and the champions can't work together at all to fight Godzilla here. So I, I do like that. It's kind of a... Um, a bit of in, a bit of being hoisted by one's own petard here, so it's it. I do like it, and and it's a nice page. We see Godzilla looming over the back of it. We see everybody scrambling off into the boats, and we see some guys are trying to stop the jets from rolling off into the bay. I mean, that's just hey, what's a few more million dollars down to the bottom of the Pacific? Uh, who cares? So, uh, and and Godzilla again kind of has the sumo look with his arms kind of spread out, and we see him kind of hunched over a little bit as he's leaning over it. Uh, good, good scale from Trimpy again to show us we've got men in the foreground, men in the midground. Then in the midground is the mainly in the midground is the helicarrier with Godzilla behind it, and then behind that is the wrecked Golden Gate Bridge. So overall, very nice splash page. I do like this one quite a bit. Over on page 31, panel two, Duggan's cigar flies out of his mouth. That is number three for the issue. And uh, that brings us right to the end. Now, this, it's a well-remembered issue because of the plot. Um, but in broad strokes, this is much more of a Marvel U comic than really one about Godzilla. He doesn't have the same personality that he had in the previous issue. He, he doesn't really get much to do. Uh, he's got to compete against Duggan and the champions, including the loquacious one, Hercules, himself. As I said, he doesn't have a lot to do relative to the human characters, so the story's more about them. Disregarding that, disregarding the fact that this could be any monster from any Atlas book uh, plugged in here instead of Godzilla, it's, it's fun, and a book which had me eager to turn the page to see what happens because of how incredibly Marvel Bronze Age the whole thing is. It deserves to be remembered because this book took place in the Marvel Universe, darn it, so here's using the Marvel Universe to the fullest. If we're going to do Godzilla in the Marvel Universe, then, then so help me, here it is. You know, you love it or hate it, it, it definitely, Mensch and company delivered on that promise that this was going to take place in the Marvel Universe. Now, my brother sent in a little bit of pre-feedback, which we'll get to, and then we'll talk about the ads. Also want to mention that, um, and I don't think I've mentioned this with the with the previous issue, but I think I mentioned with number one, but all of Marvel Godzilla is reprinted in Essential Godzilla. Collects all 24 issues. If you can find that, pick it up. For a while, that one was going for big bucks because it was out of print. Uh, there has been a new printing on it, so you can find it at more reasonable prices. And it collects, obviously, the entire series in black and white. 
Uh, so it's, it's, it's worth picking up. Now, here is uh, some free feedback from my brother. He says, Godzilla issue number three. Okay, what the heck was that? I just reread the issue again as I thought maybe I missed something. But nope, I did not. It was just not good. Mm. This seemed to be kind of a comedy issue, I guess, as the heroes do a better job defeating each other than Godzilla doing too much. While not wanting to give anything away for future issues, they could not keep issues like this coming out because people would just not keep reading them. Uh, I'll cut in here and say, even if they did issues like this, they were running for 12 issues. They paid for 12 issues on that license, so help me, they were probably going to put out 12 issues even if nobody bought them. The art looks good as usual, Jake continues, but nothing that we haven't seen in this team before. Godzilla looks less like a sumo wrestler here, but still the unique looks that we've been getting in these issues. I like the first page as we see Godzilla at the Golden Gate Bridge, which we know has been attacked before in the past and gives really nice scale. Also, the second to last page, we get a great image of Godzilla with the crippled helicarrier in front of him. Again, this shows great scale and is a nice way to show how bad the hero screwed things up before Big G just walks off. Good idea. Walking away from this issue is a solid choice. <laughs> uh, Jago continues, have faith. I have a feeling that things are about to change. And yes, uh, we will be seeing uh, some new stuff uh, coming forward in the book. But uh, this is definitely one of the more memorable ones uh, in the series, if only for you know the downing of the helicarrier, which I've had um, a couple of readers asking me about for a while, as well as, of course, Hercules backflipping Godzilla. Uh, flipping through the book for ads, most of these ads we've seen before um, is nothing too out of the ordinary. You've got the... Oh, I do like this one on the... Um, this is a superhero merchandise page, and they have the uh, superhero pinball. These are the little handheld pinball game, not handheld, but like tabletop pinball games. And they've got a, uh, let's see, here's the superhero game you've been wait- all been waiting for, pinball. Like you've always wanted it to be with your favorite superheroes. Inside the sturdy housing are flippers, levers, and marbles, just like their big brothers. Get one, two, or all three and play pinball the way it was meant to be. And we've got... Captain America, Spider-Man, or the Big, Bad, and Beautiful Hulk. three ninety six each. I, I had, not a superhero one, but I had a little tabletop pinball game like this when I was a kid. And last year, I want to say, I found a tabletop pinball game for Batman Forever at, at the Goodwill Clearance Center. And I was this close to buying that because it's pretty... First off, Batman Forever is like a really cool full-size pinball table. And this one was pretty neat, but I just didn't know. I had no place to put it, so that's why I ended up not getting it. But I'm a big pinball fan, so I do like uh, uh, these, these, these you know, tabletop little home versions of it. Um, you know, back before we had video games for a pinball, this was the closest you get to playing pinball. So, let's see. We got the Daisy Rifles. Um, Star-Lord is back and uh, Marvel Preview number 11. Uh, we do have the half-page house ad for the adaption of the island of Dr. Moreau. All new giant size Wonderment by Doug Mention, Larry Hama. I do want to mention this because I recently came into possession of this. Uh, Mark Kalmbach, friend to two true freaks. I actually won an eBay auction for some uh, Atlas Seaboard comics that he had. And he, uh, I, he sent me a note. He's like, oh, I'll include some freebies in there because you're a two true freak guy. And one of the books he included was Island of Dr. Moreau. So thank you very much. That is definitely on my to read list goes along with the copy of The Deep that I picked up a couple of months ago. Stop! The law has been broken. He who breaks the law shall be punished. Back to the house of 
uh, Slim Jim, bodybuilding, um, hostess, uh, not a hostess ad, unfortunately, just a base for baseball trading cards. Uh, let's see who do we got. Jim Palmer, Joe Morgan, Reggie Jackson. Okay. You know, this was the seventies. Yeah. So nothing really great in ads back covers Orca once again, but we went through that the last time. So, uh, I will spare us all my dramatic reading of the Orca, uh, one sheet. Um, but yeah, like I said, I mean, memorable issue because of what happens, but you know, when you get down to the brass tacks of it, not as good as issue one or two. I, I liked one and two a lot better than this one. And I'm hoping for an uptick in quality when we get to issue four and we see Godzilla in his first giant monster fight in the Marvel Comics fighting uh, Batragon. So uh, worth reading, like I said, but, you know, I wouldn't go crazy for it. It's not worth uh, paying a big, big bucks for it just because it's got the champions and shield and all that in it. So, all right, we are going to take a quick break. And we'll be back to do your listener feedback as well as wrap the show up here on Earth Destruction Directive. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Jason Giaconetti. You may recognize my voice from the Vault of Starling Monster Horror Tales of Terror. And if you don't, you should be listening. But today I need to ask you a few questions. Do you like big bugs and you cannot lie? Other robots just can't deny that when the Queen of Space walks in and puts a blast in your face that your gears get sprung? Are you deep in the bee we're sharing? Are you hooked and you can't stop staring? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then have I got a podcast for you. Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. From classics to cults and all the yummy, yummy cheese in between. Look for my new show, Bots, Bugs, and Babes, on the Two True Freaks Network and on iTunes. That's Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. Double J on the Triple B is your hookup. Holler if you hear me. Greetings, podcast listener. Do you like... Or maybe... Dragon Slay! How about... Or... In the year 1999, an abandoned alien battle fortress crash-landed on the planet Earth. Our most brilliant scientist and engineer spent the next 10 years reconstructing the damaged ship and studying its highly advanced space technology called Robotech. Do you remember... Our Star Blazers! Or this... The year is after Colony 195. As the world constantly changes in the chaotic era, there are two mobile suits that could turn humans into the ultimate weapon. The Wing Zero, and the Epion. Or maybe even this. After the desire for blood pools all, the only hope left is the one they call D. Or this. Gene, grappler ships dead ahead! It wouldn't be fun otherwise. Let's do it! Or... If Cardus is allowed to be reborn, she'll destroy Marmo as well as Lodos. Or have you seen the latest episode of... And just like that, everything changed. At that terrible moment, in our hearts, we knew home was a pen. Humanity, cattle. If you answered yes to any of these questions, then you should check out Anime Freaks, hosted by Dr. Bill Robinson and me, Gene Hendricks. Anime Freaks is a monthly podcast covering all things anime. It is available at twotruefreaks.com and on iTunes under Two True Freaks Presents 
Anime Freaks. All right, and we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. And now it's time for everybody's favorite part of the show, listener feedback. And if you would like to converse with the show, you can always send me an email at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. Also, you can hook me up on Facebook or on Twitter. And all of that information is in the outro to the show, so let's get right onto it. Our first email comes from Jack Bond, and is simply titled Marvel Era Godzilla. And Jack writes, a fine show, good balance of doing the show in the format of the Fantastic Cast, but in your own voice. Best not to try to imitate the imitable style of Stephen Lacey and Andrew Leyland with their stream of double entendres, bad fake accents, and digressions. I could only hope to do as bad a fake English accent as those two Englishmen do every week in the Fantastic Cast. Cool, blimey, governor! It's Godzilla comic book here, yeah? Oh, slag, eh? Oh, two pounds fifty! Spam, 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 eggs, bacon, and spam! Yeah, well... Jack continues, although speaking of digressions, your month of May recap surprised me by placing the last story starring the Guardians of the Galaxy on the eve of the Great Space Wars explosion. I had discovered that Nova had earlier, issue number 8, shut the door on space adventure, locking him out of the Xandarian ship and focusing more on Spider-Man type rather than Green Lantern type stories. In the next year and a half, the Guardians will bring the Korvax saga to the pages of Avengers, the Axemen will have been to the Shire Galaxy, building subplot here in May, and Nova will start a cosmic crossover with the Fantastic Four. Huh, that is interesting. I, did, I didn't know that. I haven't read most of that stuff, so I, I mean, I'm familiar with it, but I didn't know it all was kind of happening at the same time. I guess everybody was you know, getting into uh, outer space again, what was the success of Star Wars and all that, yeah? To, uh, Jack continues to digress back towards the topic. Had you noticed the internegum between the Showa and Heisei, King of the Monsters, is the period that the box office was ruled by the Star Wars trilogy? Coincidence? Yeah, probably. Mm, I don't know about that more than coincidence, because the I think the Godzilla series would have continued, except for the severe economic recession in Japan. And really, that was it. It was the rising cost of budgets versus decreased attendance at film because of the economic issues that Japan was facing that ended not only the Godzilla series, but also ended the uh, the Gamera series around the same time. And the show, what, what was successful for tokusatsu in that era was TV. Because TV could be produced at a cheaper uh, budget and more viewers were willing to, you know, they didn't have to shell out money to go see it. So it was an easier way to get viewers. You get advertising revenue, which is why we saw the rise and ver- uh, continued popularity of the, uh, you know, the various Kyodai hero shows from that era, along with, of course, Kamen Rider and the Super Sentai. So I think that had more to do with it than what was going on here in the West. Star Wars would become very popular, obviously, in Japan. Just go to HLJ.com now and look at all the Star Wars merchandise. But I think, I, I, I understand what you're going for, but I, I do think it is more coincidence than, than I think you might be giving it credit for, Jack. He also has a, a, a note here. A digression too far. Thanks for talking me down on the Jerry Anderson Mysterians link. Not Mysterians, Mysterons link. Anderson had already run into the problem of a marionette action show. There's no way to have them run convincingly. And the obvious solution was to have them drive-slash-dive-slash-fly vehicles. And I agree completely. Because if you're sitting behind the cockpit, moving your hands up and down a couple of inches, it looks a lot better than trying to run as a marionette. So we are on the same boat on that one, Jack. Uh, Jack continues. Uh, I could argue that the extra year at the end of this period was to be sure Lucas wasn't going to make any more, 
but its commencement in 1975 shows that it was for reasons of its own, which raises an interesting point. This Marvel deal happened after Toho had stopped making Godzilla films, although that fact may not have been apparent at the time. A quick look shows seems to show that the movie Godzilla vs. the Cosmic Monster was released in the U.S. in March of 1977, and Godzilla on Monster Island in August 1977. Uh, the, quote, current films of Archie Goodwin's Godzilla-gram, with Terror of Mechagodzilla still in the future for the summer of 1978. Those of us with only the essential will be waiting to hear if there's any editorial notice of that, and I will keep an eye out for that. We haven't had any uh, letters column or editorial pages yet since the first one, so I haven't seen anything with that. But, um, yeah, it's a good, uh, that, that's a good point. I think part of it was that, as I said, they couldn't really afford to make the movies anymore, but the licensing deals, licensing out to Marvel for the comic and Hanna-Barbera for the cartoon was an easy way for Toho to make money on their property that didn't really cost them anything other than, you know, the legal side of things for doing approvals and contracts. They didn't have to actually produce anything. So, you know, they couldn't afford to make the movie themselves, but they could afford to keep Godzilla in the public consciousness and, you know, use the value that they had created with his name, which was, you know, kind of the whole point of the golden age of monster move of, you know, giant monster movies in the 60s was the understanding that the monsters themselves had value other than just something in a movie. The, the character themselves still had value. So I think what you were seeing here is exactly what you're saying, that Toho was, you know, not making movies in their uh, in their home market anymore. They were exporting movies and then using deals like this to keep revenue coming with relatively low outlay of cash on their part. Jack continues, the troubling aspect of Jimmy Woo's inclusion had passed over my head when I first read it, and I don't have the excuse of having it read, read it in 1977, but back in 2006. Doug mentions reputation before, during, and after Godzilla and Shogun Warriors was in Master of Kung Fu, which I only know by reputation, but which would suggest a more nuanced approach. By the way, do you have any info on how Mensch got the Godzilla assignment? Was he himself stereotyped as that guy who's into Asian stuff? Good point. I didn't thought I had not thought about the fact the Master of Kung Fu connection. And so I do wonder if maybe, you know, maybe maybe Mensch was the guy that because he did at the time, you know, those were often thrown together. All those things from China or Japan were all kind of just lumped together as stuff from Asia, like you said. So maybe by virtue of him being a, uh, you know, enough of a fan of Kung Fu, uh, you know, the, the Kung Fu craze at the time to write Master of Kung Fu. And I like Master of Kung Fu very much. It's a very good book. It's unfortunate there never was an essential of it. There's a, they're putting out a hardcover now, but... But, you know, I mean, an essential master of Kung Fu would have been a no-brainer. But anyway, um, so no, I don't I don't know. I want I do wonder if there's something toward this in the untold. What is it? The untold story of Marvel Comics. I think it's the name of that book that came out a couple of years ago. The kind of details the behind the scenes workings of Marvel during this era. So I would be interested in that. I haven't heard anything about specifically how Munch got either the Godzilla assignment or the Shogun Warriors assignment. Uh, but that's a good point. I mean, the thing with Wu is that they, they've kind of shuffled them off to the side. Maybe they realize this wasn't the right thing to do. It seems like our S.H.I.E.L.D. guys are going to be Dum Dum Duggan and Gabe Jones. Uh, all Wu does in this issue, for instance, is just ferry um, Takaguchi and Tamara and Rob over to Detroit. So it doesn't have much to do with the plot. I guess we'll have to just keep an eye on it and see how it goes from here. Uh, Jack continues, on a related note, the Haynes publishers have found they can make a buck by putting out owner's workshop manuals for various sci-fi craft. They have come up with a volume covering vehicles in the Marvel Universe. 
I could complain that this manual doesn't include enough information to even begin repairing any of them, but instead I'll say that I was delighted to find the section on shield helicarriers to include an entry on the Monster Hunter helicarrier. They cannot name the specific monster it was sent to hunt, but does say it was designated as a kaiju. Signed, Jack. That is very funny. I, I have seen those. I don't own any of those uh, service manuals, but you know I've seen... I think they have one for like, the Millennium Falcon and uh, the... Uh, the USS Enterprise. So I, uh, that's funny that they have an entry for the Monster Hunter, and I like that they can't. You know, that's a very clever. That's a good catch, and I appreciate. It. I know you're the you're the Mecca guy, so you would notice stuff like that. So much obliged, and Jack, thank you very much for writing in. You always bring up points that I never think of. So uh, good to hear from you. Thank you for writing in again. Our next email comes from Tim Elliott and is entitled "Earth Destruction Directive Number 44 or Leap in Lizards." It's Godzilla. And Tim writes, greetings and salutations, Master Jack and Eddie. And I don't know if I've, I do have a master's degree. I guess that's about the closest to a master I'd ever be. Uh, Once again, you've reached into the heavens and with your very hands crafted another celestial episode of Earth Destruction Directive. Jim Starlin write this email. Great cover on the Big G's first Marvel book. I look forward to sinking my teeth into the run, which I have never read. Well, I hope you're enjoying it as much as I am reading it, uh, Tim. A few observations and opinions on the issue. Number one, do you think the man fleeing in panic on the cover looks like the character model for Dum Dum Duggan? Yes. I thought it was Dum Dum Duggan at first, and then he had the wrong, but then he had the wrong hat on. It's like, well, why would he be running away? Uh, but yeah, even down to the cigar flying out of his mouth, it does look like Dum Dum Duggan. So yes, absolutely. Number two, I have never liked Godzilla's atomic breath being drawn as fire. At least in this issue, it is sort of a hybrid between fire and energy. Not as bad as the Hanna-Barbera cartoon. Uh, I agree. When I see Godzilla's fire drawn as red, it makes me think of the disguised Mechagodzilla from Godzilla vs. the Cosmic Monster. Uh, so, you know, that that may just be me who thinks that, but I do agree. It is fire here, but, you know, like I said, it does have, like, the energy around it, so I can kind of dig that. And, you know, I mean, if... It, I don't know. It's hard to say because I will always, the standard to me, the first Godzilla comic I ever read was, you know, Art Adams Godzilla color special. And there the beam is clearly a Hayside style blue. So I, that I want to always kind of wish it to look like in comics. So seeing it as red, it, it kind of dates it a bit, but you know, it, it's not, it's not unlivable, but yeah, it, it certainly is a bit of a sticking point for me as well. Number three, I've always felt Marvel's Godzilla design owes a little to Kirby's Devil Dinosaur. And I could see that. Um, Devil Dinosaur has smaller forearms, being that he's supposed to be a Tyrannosaurus, but I can see that, definitely. You're taking uh, a dinosaur-like character and trying to make him move in this in this world, this four-color world. I can definitely see that. Now, that would have been a fight, Godzilla versus Devil Dinosaur. That would be something. I don't I get that. No, they get. I don't remember if we get that later in the series or not. If they do, and I, and I'm simply not remembering it, I'm an idiot. Um, because I haven't actually read the series, I'm reading it for the first time here, just like I did with Shogun Warriors. So, uh, but yeah, I, I love that the Devil Dinosaur hardcover they wrote a couple of years ago. Some of the best money I ever spent on comics. Fantastic stuff. Number four. Why do you think Toho was licensing Godzilla to other mediums at a time where they were losing interest in their own property? 
hey, this ties into the last email. Marvel Godzilla and the Hanna-Barra cartoon were taking off after Toho had ceased production of the films. And Tim, like I said in Jack's email, this has to do, I think, with the fact that it was much cheaper to license it out to other people and make money on the licensing agreement than to finance and produce and release and distribute a movie that you, of your own. So I think this was Toho doing the best they could afford to do with the character during this uh, era. And number five, on the subject of cartoons, will you ever cover any of the Godzilla cartoon episodes? Um, I don't know. I do have have them on DVD, and I, I I could cover them. I don't have anything on the schedule right now, but you know that might be something to plug in uh, as an ongoing thing. Maybe after I finish uh, the Marvel Godzilla series, I've got a couple ideas for that second feature. I've kicked around the Hanna Barbera cartoon. I've kicked around the um, the the American or the, the, the Zilla cartoon, the Godzilla ser- uh, series from Fox, which has also been released on DVD. I've kicked around the Godzilla Rulers of Earth comic from IDW, so it might it, it definitely could fit in in the future, for sure. Tim continues, Enough of my bullet points for now. Keep stomping your way into our hearts and keep the shows coming. Cheers, Tim Elliott from Texas. Well, Tim, thank you very much for writing in. Really appreciate it. Tim, of course, can be heard uh, all elsewhere on the Two True Freaks Network on Third Degree Burn, where he takes a look at uh, all things cons- all things John Byrne, who's a, a popular figure uh, over on uh, on Two True Freaks, and definitely some interesting stuff because he's exposed me to some things I had no idea about, including the OMAC prestige format miniseries, which uh, I got a chance to read after he sent it to me. Really good stuff. Really cool kind of pulpy OMAC stuff. So really nice there. And so definitely check out Third Degree Burn. Tim, thank you very much for writing in. All right. So now that we've covered our listener feedback, uh, now everyone's going to be asking, what are we covering next time on Earth Destruction Directive? Well, we are going back Back to the Showa era and back to our TV screens as we've got the next two episodes of 1966's classic suit, Tokusatsu Ultraman. Episode 13 features the monster Pestar, the evil giant starfish that likes oil refineries. Dr. Bill Robinson will be sure to be interested in this one, uh, dating back to an email he wrote me many moons ago. I'm sure he remembers that. And number 14, which features a giant monster, Gamakujira. And uh, we, of course, then will be taking a look at number four of Godzilla King of the Monsters from Marvel Comics, where Godzilla will fight Batragon. And any news or rumors, new releases of toys, anything like that that fits the bill, we will have that here for you, along with, of course, your listener feedback. So keep those cards and letters coming. And uh, so I hope everybody enjoyed the show. Come on back next time. And until we meet again, keep them stopping. This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Dai Kaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. 
I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I'll read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find the show on iTunes. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave an iTunes review if you want. You can get in touch with the show on Facebook. Just search for Earth Destruction as the first name and Directive as the last name. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter with the handle LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head on over to TwoTrueFreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Any items you buy during your session on Amazon.com will help keep the lights on and it won't cost you anything extra. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Tune in next time to hear the crusty old podcaster from Oklahoma say, There's a WTF (laughs) moment if I ever saw one. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.